The 2024 race is starting to heat up, and the South is right in the middle of the action. You should know this about me. I don't put up with bullies. And when you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy. And we are two of the political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome. And be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Patricia, you are, I'm in in awe of you. You're playing Hurt. It's great to to hear you. (laughs) Yes, be in awe. Be in awe. (laughs) <laughs> a little bit of a lost voice over the last couple of days yelling at your kids. <laughs> yeah, that, okay, I need to, I can't even joke. That is not at all what it's from. I have, I am a little under the weather. I apologize to our listeners. We're going to let Greg do a little more of the talking than usual on this, just because I'm sure it's not a pleasant listen. Um, but I don't, I don't want to call in sick. So here I am. <laughs> She's the cow Ripken of podcasting. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm over here in Charleston right now, actually Mount Pleasant, right across the river, uh, here for Nikki Haley's presidential rally and announcement um, that will be happening on Wednesday. Uh, But uh, it's also the ancestral home of my family. And so it's really cool walking around and seeing family landmarks. There's a Bluestein Brothers department store that my great, great grandfather owned in the middle of uh, uptown Charleston and Hyman Seafood I walked by as well. That's my cousin's store. My grandfather used to own a store on that block. So all sorts of folks, all sorts of family ties to Charleston. So it's a work and a family trip in a, in a sense. Greg, do you kind of wish your family still lived in Charleston? Every time I went there, I would be like, oh, I kind of wish we all lived, lived I mean, here still. It's so beautiful. My mom has something like 40 first cousins who all came to my bar mitzvah and wedding. Um, so I had to pretend to know who a lot of them were. Uh, but my mom moved back here and my uncle's here and we've got cousins here and you know, all sorts of family connections still here. So the even though I didn't grow up here, it does feel like another home of mine. I love it. Well, and that state is serving up its politics hot. So they knew that Greg Bluestein was coming back. <laughs> well, coming up in today's episode, we're going to talk about Nikki Haley's run for the presidency and what it means for Georgia. We're also going to discuss what we expect to see when the Fulton County Grand Jury Report is released later this week. Talk about David Schaefer's decision not to run for a third term in the Georgia GOP chair and the return of culture wars under the gold dome. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Patricia, I'm not surprised at all, given all the attention devoted to Georgia the last few election cycles, that Georgia and the South will be getting outside focused once again this presidential cycle. First up, 
Nikki Haley becomes the most serious challenger on the GOP side to Donald Trump yet. She launched her campaign announcement without mentioning Trump once, but she said she's not going to be bullied and that she can be a voice for a new generation of Republicans. And importantly, she's worked really hard in Georgia to deepen connections with voters, activists, candidates, and donors. It's time for a new generation of leadership to rediscover fiscal responsibility, secure our border, and strengthen our country, our pride, and our purpose. Patricia, she has a tough, tough road ahead of her. I mean, you know, she's she's pulling single digits in most polls. Frankly, at the AJC, when we polled Republicans a few weeks ago, we didn't even include her in the poll. We had DeSantis, Pence, Trump, even Brian Kemp, of course, but we didn't poll her. So she's got an uphill battle. Uh, but no one's counting her out because she's she's not just popular with some activists, but she's also very popular with the donor class of the GOP. Very, very popular with the donor class. And it really does feel like she has been thinking about this run and laying the groundwork for this run for more than a decade. And you can really see that in the relationships that she's built. Um, she's an incredibly savvy political operator. She knows the donors. She knows the power players. She's really very carefully charted her path to be kind of the least offensive to any of those groups. She's trying to keep a foot in the Trump world, keep a foot in anti-Trump world. And I want to say that her support for Governor Brian Kemp was a huge piece of that. That's not the reason that she supported him, but her choice to come out in support of Brian Kemp, even knowing that Donald Trump was in this huge feud, really was a signal that she was working very hard to keep both of those camps um, very strongly behind her, or at least not antagonistic against her. And we've seen her here for years, uh, here supporting, acting as a surrogate for other Republicans. One of the biggest, it has to be said, is Kelly Loeffler, who was not only a U.S. senator when Nikki Haley came here to campaign for her several times. I saw her at all kinds of different diners all across the state supporting Kelly Leffler. Leffler is also a mega donor for the Republican Party. So she represents a really important power center. And if somebody like Nikki Haley could wrap up a Leffler's support, that would be huge. But Haley has all kinds of other supporters. And um, it was pretty well known at the time when she took the UN position that one of the reasons she did that was both to stay out of the political crosshairs in D.C., but also because New York is such a huge center for fundraising, a crucial, crucial fundraising source for all kinds of political candidates. And that was another reason why it was very, very helpful for her to be up, up there at that UN post. And it's all part of this long-term plan that I think we've all seen Haley having throughout her career. Yeah. And Nikki Haley, you know, she had a pretty good rapport with Donald Trump during her stint as, as the president's UN ambassador. Uh, she pulled quite the feat by departing the administration while still earning praise instead of an insult fr from the president at the time. She also vowed in 2021 she wouldn't run if Trump was a candidate. So she's going to have to address that reversal. But, you know, she still seems to have a a fairly okay rapport with Donald Trump. I don't know how you could say that if she's running against them, but, you know, interestingly, but not surprisingly, Donald Trump told reporters that he actually encouraged Nikki Haley to run. And I say not surprisingly, because look, the more candidates in the race for Donald Trump, the better. He has the solid core of support in polls from 20, 30% of voters. So if there's a, another all on onslaught of candidates, it stands to benefit Donald Trump. 
Yeah, and I don't know if Nikki Haley's going to be able to have it both ways on this. I was there when she was campaigning with Marco Rubio and saying that she wouldn't even let her kindergartners behave the way that Donald Trump did. She was ripping him up and down, then very quickly came around to support him once he was the nominee and then was selected to become a part of his cabinet. But then, you know, in his post-presidency, she has really distanced herself from him, although she also said she wouldn't run against him. And then she did. So there's sort of been, she's been sort of like, one of one of a dozen different people when it comes to Donald Trump. And I think even more important than her position on Donald Trump, does she like him, does she not, is really this question of authenticity. Like, who is she? Who would she be as a leader? I do feel like voters require that kind of knowledge before they're getting behind candidates. That was one of Donald Trump's kind of biggest attributes for many Republican voters was that they felt like even if they didn't always like him, they at least knew who he was. And I think that's a place where Haley's going to have to do a lot of work to really get voters comfortable with who exactly she is other than a supporting player in the Trump drama. Um, I think that's when she'll go back to lean on all of the things she did as South Carolina governor, really focusing on the economic development that she did. I mean, the state of South Carolina boomed economically under her leadership. And I'm sure that's something that we will hear in her announcement when she makes it on Wednesday. And we'll see if her work in, in Georgia and other places pays off because, you know, she's polling in the single digits in many of these polls. Not to say, you know, that these polls are a lot of, based on name recognition and she hasn't spent any money on the campaign yet. So we'll see how that plays out. But you know, as we mentioned, she took painstaking efforts here in Georgia. Uh, Patricia, you mentioned Kelly Leffler and, and the, all the the time she came down to stump for for the then senator. But I'm thinking too back to the first time in spring of 2020 when Kelly Leffler's candidacy was really in doubt. She was facing a really hardcore challenge from Doug Collins, who was then a U.S. House member, also you know one of Trump's biggest allies. There was a lot of question about whether Trump would come out against Kelly Leffler or stay on the sidelines. He ended up staying on the sidelines. But at that really vulnerable moment for Kelly Leffler, Nikki Haley became one of the most prominent Republicans to back her, backed Governor Kemp, backed Herschel Walker, uh, was out here kind of in Georgia, all over Georgia, you know, not only stumping for Herschel Walker, but also for other Republicans up and down the ticket. And it's not just IOUs from the candidates themselves, but, you know, every time she's here, She's making connections with donors, with activists, with the volunteers who she hopes will later on fuel her campaign. We don't have a number of high-profile endorsements in Georgia or really anywhere for Nikki Haley yet. Um, some, but not a, not a huge number. But really none that I can think of in Georgia of mainstream, you know, big-time Republican players. A lot of them are staying on the sidelines. But that could change over the next few months as more candidates get in the race. Yeah, we'll also have to see who in South Carolina is going to back Nikki Haley, because one of her biggest obstacles might be Senator Tim Scott, who she appointed to the U.S. Senate. And now he is looking at a presidential run. And unlike Nikki Haley, Tim Scott knows who he is. Voters know who he is. That's not to detract from Nikki Haley, but I think voters know exactly who Tim Scott is. That is um, he has never wavered from who he started as. He is extremely conservative, has this incredible 
backstory of being raised by a single mother. He is extremely, extremely religious, really infuses his speeches with religion. Um, I had, I knew somebody, I knew somebody, a friend of mine saw him on a, uh, on a flight and uh, Tim Scott was reading his Bible and, you know, toward the front of the airplane. He was just there sort of quietly reading his Bible as he tends to do on his flights. So he's just a really, really compelling character, especially for the religious right. And I think he could have, he could give Haley a major, major problem in her in her home state, even after she appointed him. He's somebody who I think has immense potential as a candidate. And will um, it will be just fascinating to see where South Carolinians line up between the two of them and even behind Donald Trump, because Trump made South Carolina and that Columbia state capital um, one of his very first trips as he was getting out of the gate as president. So obviously, as an early presidential state, it's it was already hugely consequential. But now with potentially two presidential candidates coming out of that state, it makes it even more competitive. And Trump, of course, won the state of South Carolina decisively back in 2016 uh, when it was a, uh, a more wide open race. OK, on the Trump topic, we're going to have some major news later this week. Fulton County Judge Robert McBurney issued a ruling that said he disclosed parts of a grand jury report that details the months log probe into Donald Trump's attempt to undermine the Georgia election results. OK, so for those expecting some sort of bombshell news, you're, you're probably going to be disappointed. The grand jury's specific recommendations will be secret. We don't expect many names or shocking new details. Fulton County DA Fannie Willis says she's happy with McBurney's decision because names will not be released. I thought that he um, listened to the arguments of the state and that his order basically did what we asked. So I'm very pleased with his order. But the eight-page order from Judge McBurney said it will also document how grand jurors indicated that some witnesses, and I'm quoting here, may have lied under oath during their testimony. And it also strongly hinted that indictments are coming. Here's what former state Senator Jed Jordan said about what she's reading into this order. The very fact that he's holding some back indicates to me that the grand jury did its job. It's named names. And I think that there are going to be indictments that are going to follow very soon. Yeah, Patricia, the report includes uh, what I'm quoting here, a, quote, roster of who should or should not be indicted and for what in relation to the conduct and and aftermath of the 2020 general election in Georgia. That's what Judge McBurney wrote. In a peek behind the AJC curtains, we've already had a number of discussions and meetings to outline how our star court reporters, Tamar Hallerman and Bill Rankin, host of the Can't Miss Breakdown podcast, will handle this breaking news. But we are expecting... You know, this won't be a shock, <laughs> but the, the order is already indicating that indictments are coming. I don't know if the report will say that, but it certainly is pointing in that direction. Yes. And I think another indication that indictments are coming were the words that Fonnie Willis used in her argument to keep a lot of this document sealed. She was talking about future defendants. You're not going to have future defendants unless you have people who have been charged with crimes. And so she was arguing that she wanted to protect the right of future defendants, particularly in the conversation about a potential jury pool, doesn't want to prejudice people against future defendants if these charges are brought. And so it really was her argument really was coming in the context of a future that included a trial with 
defendants and indictments and charges and the entire buffet of legal procedures that you would have when somebody's being charged with a very serious crime. I think also this notion that there is a very good chance that people were lying under oath in front of the special grand jury raises the possibility that there could be charges from that as well, because it is illegal to lie under oath. That is called perjury. and <laughs> You're not allowed to do that. So there's a, it seems like there's a real possibility that people who may not have even been breaking previous laws could have broken the law when they were testifying in front of that grand jury. So it looks like this could very well be a multi-pronged effort that will be something that is wide-ranging, that is really the type of cases that we've seen this district attorney bring, particularly with RICO cases. We are talking about a woman who put a bunch of teachers behind bars, so she's not afraid to go (laughs) after those whom one would not expect to be indicted and brought up on serious charges. She's also pursuing RICO charges against an entire network of rappers here in the city of Atlanta, which may come as a surprise to people around the country, but that really carries in a lot of ways more potential political risks for Fonnie Willis in a county like Fulton County to be going after these uh, really very popular rappers on charges that she said their rap lyrics are part of a conspiracy to to also com- commit a series of very serious crimes. So she's, um, first of all, extremely busy right now. There are all kinds of cases coming through the Fulton County District Attorney's Office, but it does look like this is going to be one of, and, and you know, easy to say, it will be the highest profile case, not just in Fulton County, but in the nation. And as for the timeline, our AJC colleague Tamar Hallerman caught up with Fonnie Willis a couple of days ago and asked her what she meant when she said decisions were, quote, imminent. And Fonnie Willis said uh, she meant legally imminent, not reporter imminent. So we'll find out <laughs> pretty soon what that means with reporter imminent. I read that to mean not this week. <laughs> yes, I love, you know, that's a crucial distinction between Reporter imminent means within the next 30 seconds. And yeah. uh, ever since she said imminent, I, we have all been waiting for the very next day something to happen. So that was an, that's a clarification that we had all pretty much assumed by now she was talking legally imminent. But uh, that was good to get her on the record for that. Yeah. And legally Im- imminent could actually could mean weeks, months, right? For all we know. So <laughs> we're still on waiting on pins and needles, though. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, your other host, Patricia Murphy. 
We're not only your host of this podcast, we're also two of the three authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts, and you can get six months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. So you always know what's really going on. Okay, Patricia, there's so much that happened this past few days, but one of the big things we definitely want to get to is a few days before the impending special grand jury development broke, we had significant news from a Georgia Republican figure who is under scrutiny as part of the Fulton County Grand Jury Probe. That's Georgia GOP Chair David Schaefer, who told Republican activists he wouldn't run for another term. Something of a surprise. He and others involved in the fake elector scheme in Georgia were informed by the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, that they could be targets of criminal prosecution months ago. They said they did nothing wrong, and, and you know, if one of them even got elected to the state Senate. But it's David Schaefer who appeared to be under more scrutiny because of his leading role in this whole fake elector plot. Now, he's not a popular figure even among many of the most dedicated activists who make up the party's grassroots, and he's reviled by many Republican elected officials. He openly sided with Trump-backed candidates when he was supposed to be neutral. And Governor Kemp, the most popular Republican in Georgia, really a signal he wants nothing to do with him. He's even routing things that should usually go through the state party through his own leadership PAC, a newly formed fundraising mechanism. So, Patricia, right now what we know is David Schaefer is not running for another term, but there's already a battle to replace him. Josh McCoon a former state senator who's very closely tied with David Schaefer, calls himself the unity candidate. We've also reported that Rebecca Yardley, the chair of the 9th District GOP, she was in the race for weeks now, and she's also casting herself as the candidate who can help move beyond David Schaefer. Yes, well, they need to move beyond David Schaefer. And the reason this came as a surprise that he had decided to step down is that we kind of thought he would have stepped down a long time ago if something like getting ensnared in a grand jury would be a problem or being on the outs with the sitting governor would be a problem or essentially supporting a challenge against the sitting governor and then having that blow up in your face if that's a problem. You know, all of those things would have driven a typical party chair out a long time ago. So his timing right now did come as a genuine surprise, um, particularly after Republicans won all of their statewide races. I actually thought that that would be sort of the the data point that David Schaefer could point to and say, you see, everything's fine. Um, but the reality is that everything is not fine with the state Republican Party. A lot of that has to do with just fundamental changes in political campaign finance law. And so much of the money now is going outside of the state party. Although in the case of Georgia, it is deliberately going outside of the state party. It is going around the state party so that Governor Kemp and other state leaders through their own leadership committees can make their own decisions and not have to run this past somebody as a state chair who may or may not truly be behind you and supporting you. And so that became a huge problem. And really just the fact that Schaefer was so far on the outs with the governor was, um, I think, the the biggest problem. That That is just no way for a state party to operate in a state like Georgia, where typically the state party and the governor are typically in lockstep and 
that they have been on the outs for quite some time. And the decision to have those leadership committees was done to in order to bypass the state party. You also look at other sort of big, big sources of funding. Kelly Loeffler, her name's coming up again because of just the immense resources she's bringing to the situation. She basically set up her own state party. She set up polling operations, a huge staff, a door knocking operation, all of these parallel efforts that the state party really should have had the monopoly on, they just didn't. And so that party has atrophied and sort of been swallowed up in both controversy and infighting. And it will be a lot of work for somebody to come in and put it right. And more importantly, make it relevant. That's going to be the biggest piece of it. Yeah, it's definitely been marginalized. And there's no guarantee that whoever succeeds David Schaefer can make it relevant again. It still matters, right? Even even if it's just a titular role as a state party chair, you still have a platform there. You still ostensibly have support from a number of the grassroots activists, even if they're not huge donors all the time. They're the, the backbone of the party. They're the people who show up on uh, on Saturday mornings for breakfasts and you know help provide crucial early support to local candidates and knock on doors and man phone banks and all that stuff too. But clearly, uh, there is a desire from senior Republicans to have them all on the same page. We've certainly seen times when they're not, not just right now, but Nathan Deal famously washed his hands of the state party during his second term after some rifts and didn't even show up at, uh, you know, Georgia GOP events in conventions. Governor Kemp has all the reason not to. He was the one who got booed at the Georgia GOP convention not long ago after activists, you know, try, or at least some activists were showing their displeasure for his break with Donald Trump over Donald Trump's election fraud lies. So, there is a tortured history there. But yeah, ideally, you know, Republicans would love to be on the same page when it comes to GOP leadership. And they were when John Watson was the chair of the state Republican Party. Okay, Patricia, before our time is up, as we wrote in the jolt this week, there hasn't been necessarily a straight up return to the all out culture wars like we've seen in past sessions that were shaped by fights over abortion or guns or religious liberty. But there's been quieter clashes. It's been a more muted conflict. And I think that the the, the unmute button has been pressed. Um, and we've seen that just this week with religious liberty measure being introduced by now State Senator Ed Setzler, one of the biggest proponents of that measure back when he was a state house member. And then, you know, all sorts of up and down. I mean, we listed them in the jolt the other day of real socially conservative legislation. And one of the key parts of this is the return of a measure to bring Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas to the State House grounds in the form of a statue. That measure passed the State Senate on Tuesday. On the passage of the bill, the yeas are 32, the nays are 20. This bill, having received the requisite constitutional majority, is therefore passed. Well, it was a divisive debate, Patricia, because not just because Clarence Thomas is a, is a controversial figure, but also because Democrats at first attacked on an amendment to also call for a statue of John Lewis, the civil rights icon and the former uh, U.S. House member, the late former U.S. House member, uh, to the statehouse grounds. And Republicans seemed receptive to it. They told me, at least several Republican elected officials, uh, told me they had the votes to pass that amendment as well. And uh, Democrats abruptly pulled it back. Yes, I think Democrats really, at the end of the day, didn't want John Lewis to be literally tacked on to 
Clarence Thomas's coattails. That was not what they wanted. Uh, it seemed like I'm sure a good idea at the time, but then they, um, but then I think they thought better of it once it seemed like it was actually going to happen. And the Clarence Thomas statue doesn't seem, at first glance, to most people like a culture wars issue, but that really is the nature of the debate behind it. It is all about um, race. It's all about uh, particularly Jenny Thomas's role in January 6th. That came up last year during the debate. And it really is about this clash between Democrats and Republicans about how to talk about the past, how to talk about things like race, how to think talk about history. And that is why this really has um, how it became so very controversial last year. It did pass the state Senate. It didn't get through the state house. So we'll have to see what happens with it over in the state house this time around. Um, but in addition to the Clarence Thomas bill, we have also seen this week and last two transgender bills introduced here in Georgia, one from state Senator Clint Dixon that would prevent providers from giving transgender care to transgender minors, um, specifically surgeries, which I don't believe are happening in mass amounts, but it would ban those providers from doing They're that. They're not. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I am not. I've not done the research, but I don't think that happens, actually. Um, it also, though, pertains to hormones and hormone blockers. And so that is one of a number of similar bills moving across the country through different state legislatures. And so that is not just a Georgia effort. That is a national effort being pushed by national activists to really dig into um, the transgender issue. That was one of the biggest issues for for Republicans, very conservative Republicans on the campaign trail in 2022. Um, For Herschel Walker, that was one of his, it was his biggest applause line. Mm -hmm. Wherever you went in these rallies was when he talked about keeping boys out of girls sports, as he said in his own terms. That got a huge response from activists. And so Republicans know that that is really a slam dunk with their own base. So that's a bill, I think, once it's brought in front of the chamber, it's hard to see how something like that doesn't get passed by a Republican legislature. And that could have all kinds of have uh, kind of intended and unintended consequences when you dig into the legislation. So we'll have to see what happens with that bill. Um, House Speaker David Ralston was very, very concerned about transgender legislation this time last year. Um, They did pass that transgender sports ban bill, but it was to move it over to the Sports Association. It was very important to Ralston not to have a ban on transgender children in state code. That is because there is a a Georgia lawmaker who has a transgender child, and it had really been communicated and has been communicated to all of the lawmakers that this is incredibly hurtful to parents and transgender children. And uh, but it's something that is very much animating the Republican base. And so it has been up to this point, kind of a sleepy session. We've been waiting for like, we're like, when is this thing going to get started? And it looks like it really has gotten started now. The unmute button has been pressed. And that's the right way to put it. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever news breaks. We'll see you next time on the Politically Georgia podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. 
Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.